From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And today's show is called Hope Happens, and it features true personal stories of resilience, recovery, and renewal from writers Marshall Karp, Jennifer Rawlings, and Anne Levin. At 8.46 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, my daughter Sarah had just arrived at the World Trade Center when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. I've been traveling to war zones for over 20 years to entertain the troops. Those travels prompted me to direct the documentary, Forgotten Voices, Women in Bosnia. The film is about women in the aftermath of war. I was diagnosed with stage three stomach cancer on a bright spring morning in 2004. And on today's Between the Lines segment, Chicago Tribune columnist Sally Schwartz shares some insights into her writing process. I can't write unless I can think. And I can't think unless it's quiet. Also, I can't think if there's laundry that needs to be put into the dryer. I can't think if the dishwasher hasn't been emptied. I can't think if my hair isn't tied back. That's all just ahead on Read 650. How do composers, musicians, and other artists continue to create, to make their art, in the face of appalling circumstances, such as war and genocide or even a pandemic? That was the question Carnegie Hall explored with a series of streamed musical performances in the spring of 2020 during its first-ever digital festival, Voices of Hope. When Read 650 was invited to participate in the festival, we posed that question to our community of writers and received many submissions about inspiring change and lifting the human spirit. Our editors have chosen three stories that we featured during the festival to share in today's podcast, and we begin with writer Marshall Karp, who told the story of his karmic good fortune and his determination to pay it forward. Here's Marshall Karp reading Vitamin Angels. At 8.46 a.m. on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, my daughter Sarah had just arrived at the World Trade Center when American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower. An eternity would pass before I knew she survived in the agony of watching the towers collapse until I got the joyful news was unbearable. 36 hours later, I finally got to see Sarah, and that first embrace has forever been enshrined in our father-daughter chronicles as the best hug ever. As I held her in my arms, I made a vow. Do something. Pay the universe back for sparing my child. I didn't have a plan, but a year later, the opportunity presented itself. I live in Woodstock, New York, which has so many acupuncturists, homeopathists, herbalists, and mind-body-spirit practitioners that we are the unofficial woo-woo doctor capital of the Western world. My chiropractor invited me to meet with a group of his alternative medical cohorts to talk about an idea they were kicking around. Collect vitamins and distribute them in countries where children are in dire need of nutritional supplements. I had just retired from the advertising business and I told them I knew people in the healthcare industry. 
We'll take their pills, someone said, but we're not going to help them shill their drugs. No problem, I said, but they'll want to have a say in where their contributions go. Instant uproar. Nobody tells us how to do things. I tried to explain corporate culture. All they heard was corporate oppression. I walked away, but I couldn't walk away from their mission. I had found my purpose. I wanted to distribute vitamins to children in need. All I had to do was figure out how. So I dialed up the internet. Remember dial-up? Searching the web in those days was slow going, but I finally stumbled on this guy, Howard Schiffer, in Santa Barbara, California. I called. Howard had worked in the natural foods business. In 1994, he'd gotten an emergency call and delivered supplements to thousands of victims of the Northridge earthquake. And on that day, Vitamin Angels was born. For the next eight years, Howard found companies willing to donate vitamins that were perfectly good, but too close to their sell-by date to ship to retailers. By the time I called him, he was distributing them through a local relief group to 20 countries, and he was doing it alone, without a salary. I asked him what was the biggest global problem that vitamins could solve. 500,000 children around the world go blind from vitamin A deficiency, he said. We know the solution. A high dose of vitamin A administered every six months would only cost 25 cents a year to save one child's life. But we don't have the money. I know people with money, I said. And I can write. So I wrote. Proposals. Impassioned cover letters. And eventually... I wrote six words that would galvanize people to action. Be an angel. Save a life. It worked. Johnson & Johnson gave us $250,000. And our program to eradicate vitamin A deficiency childhood blindness on the planet was underway. The mission continues. The scope has evolved. Last year alone, Vitamin Angels distributed life-saving vitamins to 60 million kids, women, and babies in 70 countries. And I still write for them. Two decades have passed since my daughter was at ground zero. The memory is still painful, but knowing that the thousands of words I've written for Vitamin Angels has saved the children of other parents diminishes the pain. Howard Schiffer is a global humanitarian. I'm just a writer, but every time we talk, he reminds me of the impact that my voice has made. Like a lot of writers, I don't handle praise well, so I just tell him to shut up and save it for the eulogy. After a career as an award-winning writer, creative director, and agency president in advertising, Marshall Karp turned to writing for the stage, screen, and television, and finally, novels. In addition to his theater and film credits, Marshall Karp is the author of the critically acclaimed Lomax and Biggs Mysteries, and the co-creator and co-author, along with James Patterson, of the number one best-selling NYPD Red series. He lives and writes in the Hudson Valley. 
In a stand-up comedy career spent largely in war zones, Jennifer Rawlings has seen a lot. And the things Jennifer has seen and experienced have changed her perspective and changed her on a fundamental level. For our special Carnegie Hall Voices of Hope Festival show, Jennifer shared a memory of a very human, very elemental exchange, a conversation between two mothers in Bosnia. Recorded in her home in Los Angeles, here's Jennifer Rawlings reading Hope Happens. I've had plenty of problems. Almost died myself, twice. Spent months in the hospital, married, divorced, married again. I've ridden on that financial roller coaster without a seatbelt. I've known career chaos. And then there are my kids. Four biological children and two children by marriage. My stepson and my husband. I've been traveling to war zones for over 20 years to entertain the troops. Those travels prompted me to direct the documentary, Forgotten Voices, Women in Bosnia. The film is about women in the aftermath of war. I interviewed dozens of women for the film, different ages, religions, walks of life. Nejla is the one that still walks with me. Nejla lives in Mostar, Bosnia, and Tarek, her oldest son, age 26, agreed to translate. Tarek started the interview by introducing himself and his mom to the camera, kissing her on the cheek and saying, this is my mom, and I love my mom. Nejla told me about always being hungry during the war and never knowing what was going to happen next, always afraid about what was going to drop out of the sky. Slowly, Nejla began talking about her youngest son, Emetus, born July 8, 1985, just a few months before the Bosnian War ended and the Dayton Peace Accord was signed. She talked about how Emetus loved Eminem the rapper and video games, and I thought about my own voice. My son Noah is six months older than Emetus. They like the same things. Sitting behind the camera, looking at Nejla, I realized, we're just two moms talking about our kids. So when Nejla told me how Emetus loved doing his homework, <laughs> I thought about how I have to bribe, negotiate, and threaten my kids to do their homework. When I asked Tarek to ask his mother to tell me about what happened to Emetus, Tarek's eyes watered. My hands began to shake, and I could feel tiny beads of sweat pooling on the back of my neck as I asked Tarek again, please ask your mother to tell me what happened. Tarek turned to his mother and whispered the translated question to her. Nejla covered her face with both hands, gasping for breath. She reached for a photograph of Emetus, hugging the photograph to her bosom as she wept. Then she said, On October 28, 2004, nine years after the war ended, Emetus came home from school, did his homework right away, and then went outside to play soccer with his best friend. They were playing in an area where they had always played, an area on the map that was free and clear of landmines and munitions. But the map was wrong, Nejla said. Someone left a grenade in the rocks. My son's friend picked it up. His friend died instantly. But my son, my baby, was two or three meters away. 
He was still alive when my husband got to him, but he lost too much blood and died on the way to the hospital. Nejla tore a tissue in half, giving me half of it as she continued. When I could find words again, I asked her, Do you have any anger toward the people who left their grenade behind? Nejla caressed the photograph of Amentus. My son died in play. I have no space in my heart for anger. Only love and loss of a child. And if there's anyone in this world who can stop these things from happening, please help. I used to get lost in my own sadness. But since my conversation with Nejla, I don't do that anymore. It's not that I don't still feel pain. I do. But I've changed the way I deal with grief and disappointment. Because the people I have met have changed the way I see the world. Hope happens when you refuse to let the world change you. And instead, you change the world with love and forgiveness. Thank you, Nejla. Jennifer Rawlings is an award-winning writer, performer, and filmmaker who has appeared on Comedy Central, PBS, VH1, A&E, CNN, and elsewhere, and in the film I Am Battle Comic. Jennifer has two popular TEDx talks, and her solo show I Only Smoke in War Zones tours globally, and her directorial debut Forgotten Voices Women in Bosnia screens at film festivals and universities worldwide. Jennifer has written for several publications, including the New York Times, and she's the proud mother of five. She divides her time between Los Angeles and New York City. Stories involving the diagnosis of a serious illness are often leveraged for maximum drama, highlighting stressful moments for heroic actions. But the journal Anne Levin kept during the course of her illness reflects the profound truths of what she says was ultimately a very simple story. Anne Levin's contribution to our special Carnegie Hall Voices of Hope Festival was a submission she titled Two Green Notebooks. Recorded at her home in New York City, this is Anne Levin. I was diagnosed with stage 3 stomach cancer on a bright spring morning in 2004. In the crazy days that followed, I updated my will, put my accounts in my husband's name, took a medical leave of absence from work, and consulted with teams of doctors at two different hospitals. But before any of that happened, I went to the fanciest stationery store on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and bought two green Clairefontaine notebooks, one to take notes in whenever I spoke to the doctors and one to write down my daily medications, treatments, and test results, and what Stan and I referred to as my, quote, odd sensations. That fall, I remember my hair falling out and how I took to covering my bald head with silk scarves and thinking that I was still among the least weird-looking people on the streets of New York. I remember how the chemo made certain odors unbearable, even ones that are normally pleasant, like the pine boughs that decorate our building at Christmas and the vats of soup at the Hale and Hardy store near the clinic where I was treated. And all through those four months of treatment and five years of follow-up, which included a never-ending battery of endoscopies, colonoscopies, 
PET scans, and blood work. I took meticulous notes, kept all my bills and lab reports, and filed away every article that had any bearing whatsoever on the diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis of cancer. I wish I could tell you that instead I'd written a poignant, funny, graphic memoir like the cartoonist Marissa Acocella Marchetto, or a Marxist feminist critique of the medical-industrial complex like the poet and essayist Anne Boyer, or a profound meditation on the meaning of life like the neurosurgeon Paul Kalanithi, who died before his manuscript, When Breath Becomes Air, was finished. But I didn't. What I did write amounts to more than a shopping list, but less than a diary, and certainly nothing as formal or elegant or considered as a memoir. The messy pages, many of them dog-eared, chronicle these facts. That a week before the operation, Stan and I drove to the Target at the Queen's Place Mall so I could buy a nightgown, bathrobe, and slippers to wear in the hospital. That my wallet was stolen from a locker in my hospital room the day after my surgery. And that once, after radiation, I was so exhausted and depleted that I took a two-hour nap after walking up the hill on 94th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. None of what I wrote would mean anything to anyone but me. It's like the scratches that people leave on the walls of their prison cells, simply a device to mark the passage of time. I suppose you could say that I was a prisoner, too, of my body, which was occupied by out-of-control cancer cells, and of the doctors, who teed up the most powerful machines and poisons on earth to do battle against the rogue invaders. It took me a long, long time before I was blasé enough about the experience to put the green notebooks away in a drawer. Even now, they're precious to me, the scribbles on paper adding up to five years of my life. They remind me of a time when my friends and family came here to take me to doctor's appointments and hang out with me in the chemo suite, when people I barely knew sent me cards and flowers and recommended all kinds of books by cancer survivors. When, in a nation with unequal access to health care, I had good insurance, a kind boss, and some of the best doctors on the planet. Measuring just a little over five by eight inches, the two wire-bound green notebooks tell a very simple story, that something truly awful happened to me once, and I survived it. Anne Levin is a writer and editor who worked for many years as a journalist, including as national news editor at the Associated Press. Before that, she was a reporter for several newspapers in Texas and California. She continues to review books for the AP as well as for USA Today, and she's at work on a memoir. Anne is a frequent presence on the Read 650 stage, and you can see her work at annelevinwriter.com. The stories that you're hearing today, along with many others, are available in book and ebook form. It's just one of dozens of themed collections we've published, and they help fund our mission to promote writers. They're great gifts and perfect bedtime reading, and you can view all our themed anthologies under the Shop tab on our website. That's read650.org.
Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Our technology troubleshooter is Sarah Caldwell. Our producer is Jim Russick, and our announcer is Fran Tuno. Right after this short break, we go between the lines with writer and Chicago Tribune columnist Sally Schwartz. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. There can be so many barriers and obstacles to creativity, and some of the most seemingly unsurmountable ones are the ones we create for ourselves. For today's edition of Between the Lines, writer and humorist and Chicago Tribune columnist Sally Schwartz shares the challenges and requirements related to her craft with How I Write. Here's Sally Schwartz. Don't talk to me. I mean, really, do not talk to me. Don't call me, don't text me, don't anything me. When I write, I need it to be quiet. Quiet like don't turn on the TV. Quiet like don't play words with friends in the same house as me. Quiet like the whoosh of the forced air pushing into the room disrupts me. For me to write, I need to go into my head. I need there to be enough quiet around me so that I can shut my eyes and think. I can't write unless I can think. And I can't think unless it's quiet. Also, I can't think if there's laundry that needs to be put into the dryer. I can't think if the dishwasher hasn't been emptied. I can't think if my hair isn't tied back, the bed isn't made, and my checkbook isn't balanced. Leaf blowers and lawnmowers make me grind my teeth. All I wanted for my birthday was noise-canceling headphones. I love them. Time is the other thing I need. Not unlimited swaths of it, but dedicated chunks of it. Morning, for example, is a chunk of time. The year I kept every morning sacred, I wrote a book. I needed an empty calendar until noon so that I could write for a single hour. To write... I need quiet, I need time, and I need a clean house. Sometimes I also need to call my sister. She doesn't help with the cleaning, although she understands it, and she doesn't help with the quiet. What she does is she makes me laugh. Betsy has the ability to shift the focus of my thinking. She recalibrates me just enough. I sound persnickety even to myself. In my defense, I'm also capable of writing spontaneously. Sometimes I wake up at 3 a.m. and type fully formed essays. For the record, 3 a.m. does not count as a sacred chunk of morning. It counts as a bad night's sleep. So how do I write? I give myself the things I need. I give myself permission. I give value to the time in the chair. 
and I have learned to perfect the enunciation of two letters, S and H, pushed together and hissed at anyone who disrupts my sacred process. Sally Schwartz is a syndicated columnist for the Chicago Tribune, providing a humorous twist on the chaos of life. Her bi-weekly columns have hit their mark for nearly a decade, touching a nerve that clearly resonates with all her readers. Sally's work has also appeared in AOL's Patch and the Chicago Sun-Times, and as a public speaker, she's emceed several charity events and performed at moth events. Between the Lines is a regular feature of the Read 650 podcast, and it's the place we invite writers of all genres to share their thoughts on writing and the writing life. You can view details under the submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for our upcoming shows. For more Read 650, you can follow us on your favorite social media channel, and even better, please join our emailing list at read650.org so we can stay in touch. Our thanks again today to writers Marshall Karp, Jennifer Rawlings, Anne Levin, and Sally Schwartz for sharing their talents with us. And thank you for listening today and for spreading the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.